0: Hello and welcome back to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics. I'm Laura Macon-Isherwood. Now, we hear a lot about China in The Bunker, the nation's economic might, its ambitious president and how the country may be looking to upset the current global balance. But what about its military? China is reported to have the largest army in the world, with around 2 million people signed up to serve. It's a force far greater in terms of numbers than the United States, South Korea or Russia. But why does the nation need a force so large? And do boots in the mess translate to real fighting power? Here to discuss all that and more is Tim Heath, senior international defence researcher at the RAND Corporation, who has more than 15 years' experience working with the US government. Hello, Tim. Hello. Okay, so let's start with the basics then. How exactly is China's military structured?
1: China's military is going through a transition. Prior to 2015, it was a military organized along lines reminiscent of the Soviet Union and the Communist China. There was a priority placed on the ground forces, which served two roles. One was to defend against threats to China's borders, but they also played an important role in controlling domestic populations and ensuring domestic security. Since 2015, there's been a reform effort undertaken by the Chinese military to become more of a joint force capable of projecting power, at least to a limited extent, off of China's shores in a fashion that's uh, more like how the U.S. military operates.
0: So what has led to that kind of reform?
1: Well, the reason why the Chinese decided to go down this path was that the military leaders realized their old way of organizing and operating was really obsolete. When you have an army, navy and air force operating largely independent of each other, this difficult to bring to maximum effect all their capabilities on the battlefield. The problem you have is that these services will be uncoordinated and their efforts could be out of sync with each other, and therefore the combined effect is much less than it it might appear. However, if you adopt a joint force model of organization, which is what the Chinese are trying to do, then you can synchronize your efforts across these services and ensure that information is passed and targeting is shared and therefore your uh, combat capability is much higher. The US has demonstrated this over and over again in its wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, wars that the Chinese have studied closely, and the Chinese hope to emulate some of the uh, US military's lethality.
0: It's something that's also been spoken about here in the UK as well, trying to make sure that the three forces can share data, share information and work effectively. But how much do we know about China's power militarily. Is this trying to enhance that power? Will it give it a boost?
1: If they can pull it off, it will definitely increase the lethality and effectiveness of the Chinese military. But several caveats are in order. First off, it's worth noting that this mode of operating is extremely challenging for any country. You mentioned the UK, you know, the reality is very few NATO countries can operate in the way the US military can. They just don't have that level of skill, training and competence in operating as a integrated joint force. Similarly, the Chinese don't have a lot of experience operating as a joint force and their last combat operation, major combat operation was over 40 years ago. But in terms of their actual hardware, their weapon systems, the Chinese have developed a pretty impressive set of missiles, aircraft, ships, and tanks. So the combat potential is there. It's just a question of can they find a way to organize and synthesize this combat power in an effective manner?
0: Should Western nations, NATO nations be worried about that strength, that hardware, and the fact that China appears to be organizing itself in a way that could push that force forward?
1: Well, it is a potential threat. A Chinese military that is much more combat effective is a Chinese military that has better odds of winning on the battlefield. Now, a more effective Chinese military doesn't mean that they will go to war, but it's possible that a future leadership could be emboldened by their confidence in the PLA's capabilities. And that might mean they're more willing to take risks. And if they're willing to carry out aggression against neighbors, then there is a distinct possibility, at least the U.S., military might get involved in a fight with China. It's hard to say. Maybe someday Chinese military forces can be projected even further from China and maybe even in areas closer to NATO's operating area.
0: Where might those regions be then? Who are China's allies and where are the sort of countries of interest at the moment for them?
1: Well China doesn't really have any allies in the way that US does. There are no countries that are obligated to come to China's defense if it's attacked and vice versa. However, the Chinese do take a very strong interest in certain parts of the world and are increasing their military presence in those parts of the world. In particular, the Middle East, where the Chinese rely on energy suppliers, such as Iran and Saudi Arabia. China also has a growing economic footprint in Africa, including North Africa, where the Belt and Road Initiative, that's this ambitious project to increase connectivity and trade with countries around much of the world.
0: What is more of a risk then? Is it that soft power, that influence, the cash that's injected into those countries, almost like a loan system or that military hardware and that sort of harder fist, if you want to call it that?
1: Well, influence is definitely a more direct challenge or more imminent challenge to U.S. and European interests. As the Chinese develop their economic ties, they are also sharing their preferred political values. For example, their disdain for human rights and distrust of democracy and their preference for more authoritarian modes of governance. So they are, for example, training scholars, journalists and politicians in the Chinese way of Governing, which emphasizes control and authoritarian political values. And so th- they're exporting this more and more. And they're complementing that with arms sales to build security ties. So, in some ways, economic influence cannot really be totally separated from political influence and even military relationships and influence building. Now, in terms of combat capability or or actual combat operations to date, the Chinese have not really carried out combat on on any continent and haven't actually even fought in Asia, as I said, in over 40 years. But they are carrying out non-war missions. They are doing peacekeeping operations. They are rescuing their own people and uh, helping with humanitarian assistance.
0: Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant
1: repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct.
0: This is the story of his first week in court, told through the transcripts. Listen now to the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. There is one other big issue that we need to talk about here when we're discussing China's influence, perhaps its interest as well, and that is Taiwan. For the uninitiated, just give us a quick overview as to why China is interested in Taiwan.
1: Yes. So China and Taiwan technically are still in a state of civil war. Government on Taiwan claims to represent all of China. It was actually a government that was based on China and was defeated in the civil war, retreated to Taiwan, and has continued to govern under the Name of the Republic of China. Meanwhile, the Communist Party took over the mainland and established a government called the People's Republic of China. The People's Republic of China, that's the government in Beijing, claims that it will conquer and reunite the entire country. That means eliminating the Republic of China government on Taiwan and subjugating that island into another province. The Taiwan government rejects this idea of becoming a part of china and has tried to maintain its autonomy even though almost all the world officially recognizes the government in beijing as the actual government and control of china and very few will recognize the government in taiwan so that's a, it's a very complicated political history but in a nutshell the government in beijing believes it has the right and intends to subjugate and conquer taiwan So the PLA trains for this mission of defeating the military in Taiwan and they routinely practice amphibious assault trainings and missile launches and all kinds of exercises designed to fight Taiwan. However, a complicating factor is that the United States is a friend of Taiwan and the United States government has outlined some security obligations in the Taiwan Relations Act. So the Chinese government, when they think about fighting Taiwan, must think about the possibility that they may have to fight the United States as well.
0: We've seen a number of politicians from the U.S. heading over to Taiwan making surprise visits. That's angered Beijing, perhaps unsurprisingly. How much of a risk do you think there is of some sort of conflict breaking out there? Is it just posturing from China or do you think that there is a substantial risk there?
1: Yes. So there have been numerous politicians from the U.S. traveling to Taiwan to express their support and friendship. As I mentioned, Taiwan and the U.S. have historically very friendly ties. Taiwan's a democracy, of course, and the U.S. supports that. And the Chinese government has been extremely angry about this because it believes that these trips suggest or seem to imply a level of official recognition that is in contradiction to the U.S. government's policy known as the One China policy. The One China policy says the U.S. does regard Beijing as the government of China. So the Chinese have insisted that for the U.S. to maintain this policy, it must stop all interactions between the governments of Taiwan and the United States. The U.S. disagrees with that, given its longstanding friendship. That's why we have all these trips. So the Chinese government may be angry about it, but in my view, they are unlikely to risk a war over Taiwan anytime soon for several reasons. First, They really do not want to get into a war with the United States. The problem with wars between big powers is that they're easy to start and very hard to stop. So even if the Chinese had absolute confidence that they could beat the U.S. near Taiwan and grab Taiwan, there is no way they can be sure that once they did that, the war would end. The U.S. could simply escalate and drag out the war into a broader war. This is historically huge problem with these kind of big power conflicts is they can last many years and, and spread over much of the world.
0: How worried should the West be about this? If China did decide, right, we're going to go for it, we're going to try world domination, what would their chances be?
1: Very low. So the Chinese have a large military but the way it's structured, it can only project power really to Taiwan, which is to say mainly off the shore of China. And that's about it. They have no experience operating large combat forces on another continent.
0: A lot of the discourse around China is not just about military hardware. Of course, it's about national security risks, potentially spying. There's human rights abuses that have been reported taking place in the country as well. How difficult is that balancing act for the United States, for the UK, other Western nations to hold a relationship with a nation like China that's so vital for trade, for instance, while still being seen to make a stance against these kinds of actions that are deemed to be unacceptable in the West?
1: It is difficult. We're seeing the challenges of balancing these security concerns, and economic necessities going on in the US and in Europe. China is one of America's largest trading powers, Its markets are important for U.S. farmers and uh, some of our manufacturers. American consumers rely on cheap goods from China. And so it's hard. Despite all the talk of decoupling, it's extremely unlikely that the U.S. and Chinese economies will completely disentangle themselves. They need each other too much. That said, there are growing security concerns. The Chinese government's increasingly authoritarian and repressive stance under Xi Jinping. It's ongoing abuses of human rights, especially its efforts to suppress and apparently almost eliminate some of the ethnic minority cultures and identities in Xinjiang, Tibet. And it's a relentless intimidation of Taiwan and increasingly brash and aggressive tone in dealings with other countries make China a very difficult trade partner.
0: Speaking about The economy and growth within China. There is another problem domestically that President Xi Jinping is having to tackle at the moment, and that's youth unemployment in the country. In June, 21.3% of 16 to 24 year olds were said to be jobless. So now China's authorities say that they're suspending the release of any data looking at that going forward. I'm guessing because they don't think it's a very good PR campaign for them, saying that their youth are unemployed. How might this play into China's strength? Can the nation survive and continue its military growth without a strong economy?
1: Certainly, China's economy does seem to be slowing down considerably. In fact, its prospects for coming years are are dimming quite a bit, and it looks like economic growth will maybe slow down to about 3% to or lower, maybe. That does affect the Chinese government's ability to resource the PLA. Now, currently, China's government says they spend about 2% of GDP on the military. By way of comparison, the U.S. spends about 3 to 4% of its GDP on the military. However, there are a lot of constraints on the Chinese ability to increase that number. They just have a tremendous gap in social welfare spending and internal security needs are still quite high. So there's a lot of demand on what revenue the government can generate. And it's still not enough. The debt that China is accumulating due to its outdated growth policies, the heavy reliance on infrastructure, for example, and the building of unneeded and unnecessary factories and housing continues to drag on the government's finance. What does this mean in the future? I I think the Chinese will continue to spend on modernizing the PLA, but this slowing economic picture and the perennial problem of youth unemployment, I think will turn the government's attention increasingly inwards, and they'll be looking to ensure domestic security above all else. That is really the foundation of CCP rule.
0: And just finally... I want your hot take here, really. Where do you think that China is going to be 10 years from now, friend or foe?
1: My two cents on this is I think we will continue to have this kind of frenemy relationship with China. Our rivalry with China, the foundations are pretty deep. And so it looks like we're going to have this complicated relationship for many more years. There will be a lot of resentment on both sides and distrust frustration with each other and maybe political cyber meddling perhaps with one another, but neither country has an interest and shown much interest in provoking an actual war with each other and so i'm skeptical we will get to that point i'm just really doubtful that the us and chinese will ever get to the point that they engage in all-out war Uh, stakes are too high and there just doesn't seem to be the appetite in either country but i think this is going to be a difficult relationship for us for many more years and um, we're going to have to find ways to uh, manage this relationship
0: Just continue to dance around those boundaries and push them, I suppose. Tim, thanks so much for joining me in The Bunker today. My pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras, including getting the episodes ad-free. I'm Laura Macon-Isherwood. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Laura Macon Isherwood. The producer was Liam Tate, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.